So tonight, continuing on with the series on the Ten Paramis, or what we call, at times, the requisites for enlightenment, are qualities that are conducive to awakening. Uh, I just was reading, and what I found quite an interesting commentary by um, Sangharakashita, the founder of the Western Buddhist order, on the Bodhisattva idea. And he had been looking back into the Pali Canon to uncover um, the roots of the Bodhisattva ideal as is found in Theravada Buddhism. And he didn't actually find a lot that directly relates to the qualities that we've been speaking about, but he had an interesting uh, idea about why this was so he thought that it could be that the Buddha actually embraced these qualities. He lived these qualities. They were so evident in the way he lived his life, uh, the, the things that he did in his life, just in his very present presence, these qualities were there and present to the extent that they weren't even questioned. You know, it was... Um, as if it was something so obvious, it didn't need to be uh, spoken about uh, or expounded upon in a certain way. And, you know, I think if we think of people that we've met in our own life who embody qualities of wisdom and compassion, and think to what it's like to be in their presence, how it may be that they say very wise and useful things, but there's also something just in the quality of their presence that is very profound. And so these, uh, these ten paramis are sometimes somewhat intangible and yet very evident when we pay attention. It's not the case that they were never spoken about. You know, the Buddha, just in the way he lived his life, was an expression of compassion. Um, and you know, he once said to the first 60 arahants, Go forth, O monks, for the good of many, the welfare of many, out of compassion for the world. And to remember that the perfection of all of the paramis that we've been speaking of is really based upon having the desire to wake up, to really liberate our own minds from suffering and the causes of suffering, to deeply understand it so that we can be of service to all beings. Sangara Kashita uh, described the bodhisattva ideal as being the perfectly ripened fruit of the whole vast tree of Buddhism. And so it's really a great undertaking to uh, work with these paramis. In the last weeks, I've spoken about generosity, virtue, renunciation, and wisdom. Tonight, I'll be moving on to uh, effort or energy, which actually is uh, something that we experience or probably are quite well acquainted of through our practice. 
that, you know, so many times in practice we struggle with effort or energy, feeling at times that, you know, we have not enough energy, and at other times where there's just an overabundance of energy and can be quite unwieldy at times. Energy is a vital source in whatever we do in our lives. Without energy, we wouldn't embark on doing anything. You know, it's that vital to life. But when we look at the vow of the Bodhisattva of perfecting all of these qualities, of really bringing them into fruition, um, embodiment, we can realize that it can't be done without effort. It can't be done with complacency. That it does take a real arousal of energy and then the effort to really stay true to that direction in life. To stay true to the direction of really understanding what creates more suffering and what moves in the way of alleviating suffering. So not all energy or effort is a perfection of this parami because we do use energy in so many different ways in our lives. You know, moments where we have an abundance of energy and it moves into restlessness and it's really too much. Or energy that takes us into being irritable, um, angry, aversive. You know, when there's a lot of energy at times we have difficulty connecting with our experience. And then we can find with energy that we may have enough energy to climb really high mountains, to take part in triathlons. Um, Some of us might become workaholics. Or we might find that we travel the world over and, you know, just keep going and moving and moving and are none the wiser for it. You know, so the application of the type of energy I'm talking about tonight really needs to be guided by this aspiration to awaken um, in service of helping others to become free. In our practice, we do experience this energy or effort in ways that can tie us up in knots at times, can have us um, you know, falling asleep on our cushion at other times. And it's so common to uh, either be in one extreme or the other, and we often find ourselves grappling to really work with what's called right, right effort or energy. Uh, to find the balance between these two. And, you know, it it can always seem that you feel like, oh, you've just finally got balanced and things change. And then, you know, again, you're either um, have brought up so much energy, you get tight in the practice or overexerting or that you've kind of let go of effort in a way and start falling into laxness. And so we're always continually almost looking at this edge of what's right effort, what's helpful effort, what's really going to support us in awakening, support us um, in our practice. 
And I noticed that each time that I've heard a talk about right effort, right energy, I start listening to it in the way of hoping that there's going to be the magic formula that's given and that this time I will truly understand it in a way that I will never waver from right effort. And I'm still waiting for that talk. But I think what has helped me more than any magic formula is just the exploration of different ways we can look at right effort. Because, you know, I know for myself there was a strong ideal of what that effort would look like. And, you know, we can hear the words ever-increasing effort and have this very warrior-like image. And that isn't going to be helpful at times. You know, not that we won't be moments where we do have that warrior-like effort, but sometimes effort is so gentle and so tender, and sometimes it's almost imperceptible. And so if we're holding on to just that one image, it's quite likely we will wear ourselves into the ground. And I really know that through personal experience. You know, that having seen, um, it was really kind of an important teaching around right, right effort for me once when I was practicing in Burma. And, you know, like you coming here and seeing this as a really important time and just trying to apply myself, apply myself, apply myself. And, whoa, getting, you know, getting tight, getting tired. And, you know, the tireder I got, the harder I would try to work. And it was torturous. And then finally one day, Sayadaw Ujanaka gave a talk on effort. And he was talking about, very matter-of-factly, you know, how sometimes we have energy and sometimes we don't. And then he said, but why? Why is this so? You know, I could feel myself perk up at that moment. I'm very intrigued. Why is it so? And then he simply said, because we are human. And do we forget this in our practice? Maybe. (laughs) I know I certainly have. And I was at that time. You know, I was going to be that superhuman being that could just keep going, going, going. And it just wasn't possible. And so, you know, in that moment was a huge teaching for me. You know, I could let go of the ideas that I was carrying about what my practice should look like, how I should practice, and it became much freer. It became much more honest. It became much more a sense of just being able to meet experience wherever it was whatever was happening, to find the effort or energy to meet it. So what would the Buddha have been pointing to when he spoke about right effort or right energy? He spoke quite specifically about right effort as being the wholesome energy directed towards liberation and needing to be guided by right view and right intention. So just to speak a little bit about having this wholesome energy directed towards liberation, but then having this support 
of right view and right intention. Right view is where we have some sense of direction, where, uh, um, you know, it can be hearing some possibility of where these teachings can lead us. And using that as a guide as to how to work. So what, as a simple way of putting, a more simple way of putting this might be around, you know, hearing about how what we do in our lives plants seeds that will ripen and bear fruit. What we turn our minds towards um, is what we will reap the fruits of, the law of karma. So when we can have some understanding of the law of karma, this can help to guide the view or direction of our life. If our view is holding some understanding of life that is going to lead to more suffering, that will also have a, take our life in a certain direction. And so it becomes really important that our view be a direction that is going to lead to um, cultivating these wholesome states of mind or helpful states of mind, rather than keeping us caught in this web of suffering. So we find on one level, right view uh, is, is having some understanding of this law of karma, and then it deepens when we really start to understand for ourselves um, the cause of suffering. You know, the cause of suffering being craving, clinging, attachment. And when we really begin to understand this, and have our own understanding of the mind of non-clinging, this becomes right view. It becomes a deepened right view, a liberating right view. And so right effort being guided by the law, understanding of the law of karma and understanding of the, the causes of suffering. Right effort or energy also needs to be guided by right intention. Really having the intention to let go of that which creates more harm, more suffering. And the Buddha talked about right intention being thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of generosity, and thoughts of non-harming. And so when this is applied to right effort, right energy, it's in those moments where we see ourselves faltering, when we see ourselves moving towards actions that create pain and suffering. It's to have the effort or energy to turn the mind towards non-harming at that time. Right effort or energy is really the energy that helps us to walk skillfully this path to complete liberation, to the unbinding 
of the heart. And it's the momentum of staying on the path, staying diligent. The Buddha also talked about there being four great endeavors of right effort. The first of them, to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. To prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. This is where we guard the mind. We guard the sense doors. We prevent through either mindfulness, where you know, we can simply be with our experience at any of the sense doors, which helps to protect us from moving into habituated responses to um, the sense doors, to experience of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Uh, prevents us from grasping at these experiences or identifying with them. To simply know experience at the sense doors is a way to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. We also know it when we strengthen concentration and enter into deep levels of absorption. The mind becomes protected from the hindrances. The hindrances are temporarily kept at bay. The second great endeavor is to abandon those unwholesome states that have already arisen. No, to abandon that which is painful, that which is harmful. The abandoning sometimes may be easy. Sometimes we see that it's really time. There's no point to hang on to um, something that's burning, eating us up. You know, the pain can be so strong that there's an abandoning of mind states, of craving, of clinging. Sometimes, even though we see this is painful, this is suffering, um, it, it doesn't immediately let go. And so we may have to look more closely at these experiences. We ha- may have to bring in the quality of investigation, mindfulness, taking an interest in our suffering, so that we can come to know it, to be free of it. We can also replace an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. So for finding that we're caught in attachment, we might reflect for a moment on the truth of impermanence. How whatever it is that we find ourselves so attached to is really a fleeting experience. And there's no way to hang on to it. There's no way to make it permanent. It might also be in a moment where we experience anger. That instead of being 
entangled in the story of anger, we can at that time turn our attention to the practice of loving-kindness, planting wholesome seeds in the mind. We can also reflect on the faults of disturbing thoughts. When we have disturbing thoughts, to take a moment to really see how harmful, how hurtful these thoughts can be, how damaging they can be. And this in itself can bring up enough energy to release the thought. It may be that we're caught in the story of anger. And so as we reflect on the harmfulness of that, we might actually, in that moment, experience the poison of anger to see just the effect it has on us in that very moment. And that in itself can help us to let go. And sometimes we have to be very strong with the abandoning of these unwholesome states that have already arisen. You know, sometimes they're so sticky, so um, compelling, and it will take an enormous effort, you know, and it will be the sword of wisdom that it's just like saying enough, and out of that comes the abandoning. The third of the four great endeavors is to arouse unarisen, wholesome states. To arouse unarisen, wholesome states. One way that we can do this is by practicing sila, virtue. That when we take care with our words and our actions, that this has a way of bringing forth joy into the mind. We live with a lightness of heart. It encourages these um, wholesome states of mind. We also do this through the practicing of the four foundations of mindfulness that we do in our vipassana or insight meditation. That this encourages these wholesome states of mind. And by staying steady in the practice, by not wavering, this helps to uh, arouse these unarisen, wholesome mind states. And the last of the four great endeavors is to maintain the already arisen, wholesome mental states. This is described as to keep firmly in mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. When we do so, the mind gains stability until there is liberating realization. And so it's really about coming to know our task at hand, coming to know the value of mindfulness, of staying steady with mindfulness, and 
really, you know, through that, we can do that with momentary concentration, being totally present to our experience, moment after moment, and just really staying steady in that. And that will help to maintain the already arisen wholesome mind states. To me, the, the, um, the reflections on these four great endeavors, becoming acquainted with them, has been really helpful because it helps to take it out of the idea that right energy or effort is having this really strong, vital um, energy that will keep going no matter what. You know, and just to see that it is learning to work skillfully with whatever mind states are arising in our experience. I think being on a longer retreat, some of you are here for probably longer than you've ever sat before, Um, some of you for great lengths of time, there can be a misconception about right effort or energy when we come to it thinking that our effort or energy will be the same as what we experienced when we did a 10-day retreat. You know, and on a 10-day retreat, you know, it's a really, well, probably when we first started practice, it seemed like a lot, but it becomes a smaller chunk of time. And that during those smaller chunks of time, there can be quite an energy that we call forth because, you know, at some point we'll be leaving and things will shift. And so, you know, it's almost like you can make a charge in your practice. And if you come and you think you're going to charge for six months or a year, you know, it's going to be a big disappointment because it isn't about that. It isn't about that intensity with which we did the 10-day course. And so you know, we, it, it's important to reframe effort or energy. I think one of the things that has helped me to understand it um, in a helpful way is looking at the relationship between faith and energy. Because faith will really help to generate energy. It will help to um, really invigorate in a wholesome way effort or energy. And it brings about more of a sustaining energy. There's an internal shift that happens. It, um, when we look at what happens with faith, where you know, at first when faith arises, it can simply be that we've heard of something, it resonates, and we make some application of energy or effort. But then when we practice and start to get some sense of it, of our own experience, getting some sense of verified faith, coming to see something for ourselves, then there really comes uh, a renewed sense of energy. You know, we're very interested, and it's a natural interest. We're not forcing anything. And it's a, a vitality that comes 
out of having this strong interest and seeing things in a new way. It's not imposed through ideas or um, ideas of how things should be. It isn't filled with a grasping tendency because it holds within it that quality of investigation, of looking for ourselves, looking to come to know for ourselves. So getting in touch with our own faith, what inspires us, can be a way that we arouse energy, that sometimes reflecting on things we have come to know, for ourselves, and letting that um, bring a sense of vitality into our practice. We can also come to know energy or effort in a different way through looking at the Pali word virya, which often is translated as effort or energy. And it has this quality of virya also holds within it the quality of courageousness. It's a courageous energy, courageous effort. And this is a courageous effort or energy that is present when we simply have the willingness to be with our experience just as it is. To be with our suffering when we're in pain. It takes a huge amount of courage to face our suffering. And so it's this quality of effort that helps us to do it, having within it this heroic quality. So there's really no magic formula for effort, calling forth effort. When we are struggling with it, to remember that it is something that's common to all meditators, you know, that we will commonly uh, have difficulty with it. And to look to see what is the effort or energy that will simply help us to meet any experience in any moment. And to know that conditions are always changing, so there can't actually be a fixed formula. I relate to right effort in in the way that I used to use effort or energy when I skied a lot. And If you've done any amount of downhill skiing, you know that conditions are always changing. You know, even on one run, you can hit powder, you can hit ice, you can hit hard packed, and how you will meet that moment will vary according to the conditions. You know, if if you're skiing down and it's a really light powder, you, you learn to push into that snow with just the amount of effort that's needed until you feel the snow push back on you. 
and you're just really using a sensitivity to meet that moment. And then if you're hitting the ice, if you press hard, you'll just spin around in a circle. So you just have to have the lightest of touch, the lightest of connection in that moment. And you know, if you're going through slush, if it's really heavy, you've got to really rally up that energy to turn those skis around. And, you know, and that's the dull, foggy mind. You know, so, but it will vary all the time how you meet the moment. And so seeing if this right effort, right energy, can become very sensitive and insightful and just enough to help you meet the moment. Because when we do more, then that effort or energy becomes our experience. Because we will become tied up in a knot. We will become tired. You know, it's like we've overshot the mark. And there's ramifications of that. If we're too sluggish, we won't even meet the experience. You know, it'll be some haze and, and, you know, some awareness of experience happening somewhere, but we can't perceive it. If we wake up in the morning and we're feeling very, very sleepy, tired, If we just lay there and note, sleepy, sleepy, we'll probably fall back to sleep. You know, so if that's a moment where we're going to have to call up the energy, call up the wisdom factor to get us upright, to um, give ourselves supportive conditions. At another time in our practice, you know, if we've been really almost hyper-diligent in coming back to the breath, and find that, we're, that there's a lot of tension, a lot of tightness, right effort is going to be to relax, to settle back, to open more easefully to the experience in this moment. There's often a tendency when the effort or energy seems to be lagging to want to try too hard, to become very uh, tense with how we try to call forth energy or effort. Um, I've been having um, a recent investigation around effort and energy in mountain biking, and I'm quite new to it, so... Uh, you know, there's a lot of error that happens in this play. And, you know, I was really noticing how there's times when I'm going through a very narrow part of the path, and there might be a rock on one side and a tree on another. And so, you know, in trying to call forth this, this energy that's going to keep me right on track, there's a tensioning, a tightening. And then when that happens, then I'll suddenly look at the tree and because there's so much tightness, I head straight for the tree. You know, there's not the flexibility. Um, the, the mind has become very brittle. And that's what happens when we start to tighten around this energy. So really seeing if you can notice that tendency when it's uh, becoming forceful. 
And so, you know, if we're really sleepy, rather than trying to be um, very brutal in how we meet the moment, sometimes it can be more helpful to reflect on the impermanence of life, the fleeting conditions of this life, or the preciousness of this life, this moment, that, you know, it's an incredibly rare opportunity to have the opportunity to hear the teachings, to practice, such as we are doing here. You know, even to have, um, to be reborn as a human being is said to be very, very difficult. A recent description that I read of how difficult it is, it's as difficult as being up in an airplane and throwing a pea out the window and having someone catch that pea on a needle. (laughs) So, you know, when we're getting complacent, looking, you know, for that way that we can really get in touch with the vulnerability that we have in life and the preciousness. You know, it can take us into the potency of this moment. And it's actually said that uh, the proximate cause or the conditions that give rise to effort or energy is spiritual urgency. So really helpful to get in touch with spiritual urgency, you know, to understand this truth of impermanence. We don't know what's to come. We don't know what the future has to offer. But we do have this moment. I'd like to share um, a quote from Nagarjuna. Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up living still. The Zen master that I used to practice with, Hogan Daido Yamahata, he was, uh, or he probably still does, I don't know, would use the phrase over and over again, now by now. And that's really about right effort, right energy. Now by now. Meeting this moment, which helps to bring a vitality to our lives, helps to bring a sense of awe, discovery, It opens us up to be able to see life in a new way. As we explore effort or energy, we will see that there's different kinds of energy too. That, you know, there's the the initial energy that we need to do practice or at the beginning of a sitting to really collect the mind that this is kind of, um, you know, having the sense of possibility, the gathering up of that energy. And then as we practice, a different kind of energy comes into play as we meet obstacles and that we stay persistent in working with these obstacles And then when these obstacles are overcome, there's actually another releasing of energy there, 
where the energy is quite invigorated. And at times, we'll find practice becomes very effortless. And yet, even when practice starts to move into being effortless, there's still a type of effort that's needed in staying persistent. Because without a persistent energy, our practice will cease to deepen, to go deeper, to really discover or uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. So there's kind of an initial energy that we need, and then there's the kind that is um, kind of a cutting through of obstacles, and then there's a persevering energy that's needed. In working with the arousal of effort or energy, it can also be helpful to have some understanding of the seven factors of enlightenment and the understanding that within those factors of enlightenment, there's three arousing qualities or factors of mind and three tranquilizing qualities and one stabilizing quality. So the three of these arousing qualities are investigation, energy, and rapture, and they help the mind to be awake and alert. And then there's the three tranquilizing qualities that are calm, concentration, and equanimity, and then mindfulness being the stabilizing quality. And when we're working with the arousal of energy, that that's, you know, if, if the mind is really quite slack, lax, that's not the time that we want to be working with the strengthening of calm, concentration, and equanimity. Because um, that will not invigorate the mind. And the Buddha um, talked about it in this way. He said, Bhikkhus, suppose a man wanted to make a small fire burn up and he put wet grass on it, put wet cow dung on it, put wet sticks on it, would that person be able to make the small fire burn? No, venerable sir. So too, bhikkhus, when the mind is slack, that is not the time to develop the tranquility enlightenment factor, or the concentration factor, or the equanimity factor. Why is that? Because a slack mind cannot well be roused by those states. When the mind is slack, that is the time to develop the investigation of states, the energy factor, and the rapture factor. So, you know, a a tendency when we're feeling quite sleepy and we think that we want to arouse more energy, but we start focusing on the breath in a way of just being with the breath, but might fall into the rhythm of the breath. And that will, we might start to strengthen concentration for a while, but it does, if it doesn't have that vigorous energy, we'll just fall asleep. So instead, what, at that time, what we need to do is to take an interest in the breath, that quality of investigation. And that will help to arouse the energy factor.
there's one list of 11 factors that bring about energy. So I'll speak to a few of these. I won't go into all of them. The first is to reflect on the states of misery. And so, you know, when we reflect on the states of entanglement that we get into, it can help to, uh, you know, feel the pain of them, to, uh, to remember that it's really un- unpleasant, it's confusing to be caught in these states. And so this can help out to arouse energy. To become aware of the benefits and advantages of energy. And this can be reflecting or remembering the times in our practice when we did have the energy to cut through the obstacles. And to remember when we cut through what seems like obstacles and perceive things as they are with a clarity of mind that is free of grasping, it's a lot less painful. So that too can help to call forth energy. It can be helpful to have an appreciation for all of the support that we've been given. That in our being here, there's probably numerous beings that are supporting us. You know, whether it's people at home that are even doing things such as simply checking our mail, uh, paying our bills, or maybe people have financially supported us in being here. In being here, we have the staff that's supporting us. Um, and you know, each day, many days, there are people who have offered the meals to us through the meal dana. And when we reflect on this, Oftentimes, it will bring about the desire to be a worthy recipient, to be worthy of what we are receiving. And this helps us to be more energized in our practice. There was uh, one way of bringing forth energy that I found quite interesting to look at. And that was a reflecting on the priceless spiritual heritage that we inherit from the long line of the Buddhist teachings. And for me, it was, in seeing that at first, it was like, what, what do you mean by that? And then when I started looking at what spiritual heritage means, you know, our spiritual heritage being made up of qualities such as faith, morality, moral shame and dread, knowledge of the Dhamma, generosity and wisdom. This is a great heritage, a great lineage that we can be a part of when we um, call forth all of these qualities in our own lives. Another way to call forth energy is to reflect on other beings who have walked this path. You know, some of the great disciples in the Buddhist life, uh, people such as Ananda, his attendant, 
Sariputta, Moggallana, who were said to be his right and left hand uh, in, in carrying these teachings into the world. Um, you know, I remember once reading the book, uh, Great Disciples of the Buddha, and I found it so inspiring that it was very instrumental to me in looking into my own life to, to really ask the question, am I doing enough? And it also was very instrumental in my decision to go to Burma and to temporarily ordain as a nun. You know, and this is you know, just gaining inspiration from those who have had this capacity to untangle this knotted heart that we so often feel burdened by. You know, and then there's more contemporary people that we can uh, read about, be inspired about. And you know, Deepama was certainly one of these people for me. And you know, when I read the book Knee Deep in Grace, uh, it just so inspired me that I felt like it you know, lit a fire under me. And so you know, this can be a source of inspiration. Another way of arousing energy is to have constant association with the active and the energetic. And I think you're very blessed in this form right now because you have many other fellow meditators around you and we can keep each other inspired we can keep each other going and that is the benefit of being here as a sangha as a community that we can help to rekindle each other in our practice Another way of arousing energy is to incline the mind towards the developing of energy. When I heard or read this, you know, I interpreted it in a very simple way. It can be just staying true to um, the effort to simply turn up and to do the best that you can and to really rest in the simplicity of just turning up over and over again. And so, you know, that right effort can be just, you know, getting into this rhythm, sitting, walking, doing the best that you can, and to not be continually judging, assessing your experience, but to just rest in the integrity of your intention and doing what you can. So a summary of effort or energy. By definition, it's being the state or action of one who is vigorous. The state or action of one who is vigorous. Its characteristic is that of marshalling or exertion. Sometimes it's called striving. It doesn't need to be a tight exertion or marshalling of energy. It can be very gentle at times. 
but it's without being distracted. Its function is to support, uphold, or sustain. So we find that there's a supportive quality that is present when the mind is withering or when we're under a lot of stress. It's in that moment the support being the realization that there's no other time but right now and that, um, that it only takes the simplicity of meeting this moment. The manifestation of energy is a bold, brave, or courageous mind. It's a mind that does not collapse in the face of difficulty. And then the proximate cause of energy or effort is that of spiritual urgency. When energy is spoken of as being a parami, it's the energy that is needed to perfect all of the other paramis. And so one can imagine that this is a lot of energy. (laughs) Um, But our level of energy can be infused with vitality when we practice for the sake of liberating, freeing our own minds and hearts in service of helping to free others. When we really keep the welfare of others close to our hearts, this can have a very vitalizing force and helps us not to be daunted with the immensity of the task at hand. It helps to keep our efforts or our energy very real, very grounded, very present. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.